Corinthians chapter 3. This uh, slide up here, if it will turn, there it goes. Uh, that kind of shows you an outline of chapter 3. Last Sunday we went through the first two. Or, no, that's the wrong slide. <laughs> I've got my reading glasses on trying to read that. So uh, that right there is kind of an outline of the, the, the letter after the introduction. Uh, as soon as Paul gives us a little nine-verse introduction, he introduces the, the overriding problem at the church, which is divisions, uh, divisive attitudes. And uh, then he, he talked about the reason for that. And it was because people were not growing up, not growing in Christ. They were, you know, still living like they had never gotten saved. You know, they were still thinking about everything from the world's perspective. And... Uh, you know, when we get saved, when something happens in our life and we repent, we have to make some changes. Or we'll just go back to the same things that we used to do. Life has to change. Your friends have to change. The places you go has to change. The things that you listen to, the way you talk, the things that you read, the things that you listen to on the radio. All of these things plug in. The things that you do with people at work. All of these things have to change. Because if they don't, it won't be long before you are, there's really no distinguishing thing about you and a lost person. You're, nobody would be able to tell the difference. And this was what was happening. Even though these people were still going to church, they were thinking wrong. And it was causing all kinds of problems within the church. And so, uh, divisions. And Paul talked about the cause, and then he returns to the divisions again in chapter 3, which is what we've been studying. Um, so we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. And last Sunday, uh, I introduced this outline from that's uh, Warren Wiersbe's outline, and uh, it talks about how this chapter breaks down because what Paul does is he presents the church in three different uh, metaphors or examples to help us see some things that maybe we uh, need to be reminded of, of course. And the first one is that the church is a family. And so we're not supposed to be all divided. We're not supposed to be fighting and breaking off into little splintered groups. You know, it's not uh, the way it's supposed to be within a church. We're family. And uh, we're supposed to have maturity. The goal is for us to, to continue growing. So God expects His kids to grow. And we found that these folks were not growing at all. And then secondly, the church is a field. And so a field is full of plants. A field is full of crops. And so the individual believers become, each, each one's a plant. You know, a seed was planted, it was watered, it was nurtured and protected and grown. And uh, that's great. You know, we can have a lot of nice plants. But there's a reason for the plants. You know, nobody plants corn, uh, you know, uh, just so they could have nice green corn stalks. You know, it's, the idea is for you to have corn, for the plants to yield a harvest, for the plants to yield fruit. And so we talked about last Sunday how nobody plants a tomato plant expecting that tomato plant to 
not produce any tomatoes, or to just produce one tomato. Many tomatoes. You just keep pulling them off that plant. And uh, the idea is that we're supposed to be bearing fruit in quantity, a lot. We're not a one-hit wonder. God expects us to continue growing, and as we continue growing and yielding our hearts and our wills to Him, He's going to do stuff. He's going to use us. You know, we become available to Him when we're when our hearts are open. We're available, and He will use you. Um, all you got to do is just say, God, what would you, you know use me today? Make me available. Use me. And while it's happening later in your day, you'll be like, Wow, I can see what He's. This opportunity was created because I was available. You'll see that if you'll just do it. And so the church is a family. God wants us to grow. The church is a field. God wants us to to bear fruit and to bear a lot of it. And then the final aspect that we're going to be looking at is verses 9 through 23. That the church is is a building. It's going to tell us in our passage that the building is a is a temple. The church is a temple. It says that it's holy. In other words, it's set apart. And the building is constructed with materials. And so the idea is, is for those materials to be good materials, for the material to be quality. Quality materials are rewarded fruit is rewarded. Now before I, we read our passage, let me just say that, uh, let's see, let's see if we can follow our train of thought here. God wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to stay little babies. And if we live in the world and we stay in the world and we keep thinking like the world and doing all the things that lost people do, we won't grow. We'll continue to stay immature little babies. But God doesn't want that. He wants us to continue growing. So as we grow, we're going to bear fruit. Now, that's a lot of fruit, quantity, just from that outline. But now we're looking at quality. And so we want to remember that there's no such thing as fruit that is not quality. It's all quality. You don't bear fruit that's kind of good. It's very good. Fruit is wonderful. Fruit is something God rewards us for. So there's no such thing as non-quality fruit. So what are we going to be reading about? We're going to be reading about a church that is built out of different kinds of materials. And some of those materials are worthless. And some of them are very good. So we want to build the church with good materials. And there's a reward for that. But think about what that's telling us. That's saying that it is possible for a Christian to be building and doing things that actually look good on the outside, but they're actually worthless. Our passage begins in verse 9. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation and another builds on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it because no one can lay any other foundation that is, than what has been laid, that is, Jesus Christ. 
If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it, because it will, it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through fire. Don't you know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone ruins God's sanctuary, God will ruin him. For God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. No one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again... The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are futile. So no one should boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you belong to Christ and Christ to God. We need to get out of our minds right from the very beginning that this is not really talking about an individual. It's talking about the church as a whole. The church is what is being constructed. The church is a family. The church is a field. The church is a building. And in verse 16, Paul, Paul tells us that the building is a temple. And so he begins telling us what kind of a building it is. But it's a building. And where you and I come in is that we're the ones building it. We're the ones bringing the material to the construction site. And so what's telling us is that that is going to be evaluated. And it is one of those deals where some things can look really good, but not to God. Now, in verse 9, it says, you are God's field, God's building. This building, there's a Greek word for the building, which is different from the word for temple. They're not the same. So when we come to verse 16, he begins telling us that this building is a sanctuary. That's what the Holman Christian Standard Bible has. It. I think all of the other ones use the word temple. Don't you know that you are God's temple? He's talking to the church. He's talking to all of these believers in Corinth. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? That's verse 16. So it's describing what kind of a building. Now in chapter 6, that same word that's in verse 16 for sanctuary or for temple, in chapter 6, verse 19, he starts talking about how you and me, our bodies, are a temple. And so the, the picture changes a little bit. Here we're talking about the church. But in chapter 6, we're talking about the individual believer. Chapter 6, verse 19 says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. But again, here in chapter 3, we are talking about the church here in Corinth. And our goal is quality. Now the believers, they are the ones, the, the believers in the church, they are the ones who are the builders. And it is their work that is going to be tested. 
So our work is going to be tested. And when it is tested, it's going to reveal what kind of materials were used. And so I don't know if you caught it or not, but this passage is, uh, is very sobering. Because it's talking about a time in the future when each one of us are going to have to give an account. And our lives are going to be examined thoroughly by God. Look in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, how serious this is. It says, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. Because when He does, look, the Lord is who will, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. So there's an examination coming that each one of us have to face. Now, in our passage, we're talking about the church. Now, what is the church? When we say church, what are we talking about? What is the church? There is a, uh, a universal church. Um, all over Cincinnati, there are Christians who are in church this morning. Praying and singing and having fellowship. They're studying the Bible together. All over this city, there are Christians. In northern Kentucky and in Indiana. Even in places like Chicago and New York City. In Los Angeles and San Francisco. There are Christians right now meeting. There are Christians all over the world. And all of them, all of us, are part of the body of Christ. There's many places in the Bible that talks about this, but... Uh, in our letter we're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it tells us that for by the Holy Spirit we were all baptized into the body of Christ. It says it like this. It says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And this is not limited to those of us who are alive. The body of Christ includes those who have already died. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks about Christians who have already passed away. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep. Those are Christians. So that you will not grieve like the rest, those, those who have no hope. Think of that. When you watch a movie about someone dying of cancer or... On, on, on the movies, you know, or something. It's, it's always, there's no hope, you know. It's always so miserable, and the best thing we have to offer is that there was some flowers that grew up here, or uh, a little dog, you know, just some kind of horsey thing. It's, it's nonsense, you know. There's, it's like um, the fact that people resolve something, conflict in their relationship, you know. I mean, when you look at the way the world ends, those tragedies, they have nothing to look forward to. There's no hope. That's why those movies are so miserable to watch. It's, it's an hour and a half of watching something horrible happen, and it all ends with nothing. But here it says that we don't want you to be like those people who have no hope. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So when Jesus comes back, He's bringing them with Him. Now their bodies are in the ground. 
but their spirits are in heaven with Jesus right now. So those people that you have lost, that's where they're at. In verse 15 it says, For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord. This is something God hadn't revealed. There's something special here. But he says, We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so verse 18 says, Therefore encourage one another with these words. So let's be encouraged. The church is universal. It's believers all over the world. And it's even those believers who have already died. Their bodies are in the ground, but their spirits are up there in heaven with Jesus as we speak. When He comes back, He will bring them with Him. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. That's what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Very clear. When Jesus comes back. So there's a universal church. and uh, You know, is the church the family of God? Do we, do we expect to see Moses in heaven? Do we expect to see Abraham? Adam? So that's the family of God, but the church is something very specific. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. That was in the future. And then there was the day of Pentecost, and then that's when the church started. And when Paul, later in chapter in Acts, Paul will look back on the day of Pentecost and say, as it was in the beginning. And so these arrows, Jesus is talking about, I'm going to build the church. Paul is looking back at the beginning. It's the day of Pentecost. Something very unique happened when God founded the church because this is the first time that believers have actually been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and He never leaves. The church is very unique in that respect. And so the church is universal and it includes those who have fallen asleep. But there's a local church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, it'll say that Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia. Something different, isn't it? To the, when John wrote, he says, I, and then he, he wrote a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So now we're talking about local congregations, aren't we? There's the universal church, but now there's a local church. We remember that there was a, a Roman emperor named Claudius, and he kicked all of the Jewish people out of Rome around A.D. 50 or 51. And Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome, and they ended up in Corinth. And so when Paul went to Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla, and he was making tents with them, remember? And they were a wealthy, wealthy couple. And then when, when Paul left Corinth, he took them with him, and they all went to Ephesus. And when they got to Ephesus, Paul left and went back to Jerusalem. Aquila and Priscilla stayed in Ephesus, and they met Apollos who would later be a teacher in Corinth. Apollos was a, a disciple of John the Baptist. So they hadn't heard the full gospel yet, so they explained it to him. That's Aquila and Priscilla. Well, at the end of the letter to the Romans, the book of Romans that we're studying in Sunday school, Aquila and Priscilla have returned to Rome. And in chapter 16 of Romans, Paul is sending greetings to everyone, but he says, and he also uh, sends greetings to Aquila and Priscilla, 
And he says, and to the church that meets in their home. Chapter 16, verse 5. To the church that meets in their home. So this building is not the church. This is where we meet. We could meet in a home. We could move out of this building into another building. This building is not the church. The church is us. To the church that meets in their home. You know, the church is not a building. The church is not a parachurch organization. It's not like block ministries or the Samaritan's Purse. As wonderful as those things are, that's not the local church. The local church is instead a place where believers can fully apply all of the principles of the body that are outlined in this letter in chapter 12. And when we get to that, we'll see that the body of Christ has been equipped with gifts and talents. And we all come together to serve as in, in unity where all of these things are exercised. All of the things that are described in chapter 12 are fully applied in a local church. Here are some things that distinguish a church from just a Bible study in your home or the Samaritan purse or something like that. Focus on the family. Here are some things that distinguish that. In a church, there's leadership through two offices. There's the pastor and deacon. And they have qualifications that, that God has been very specific about. Those qualifications are found in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Churches have members. You know, attending church and joining a church are two different things. Becoming a member of a church is like saying, I want to get off of the bench and participate in what God is doing here. I'm on board. I want to be a part. Because God has, just think about it, Jesus died for the church. He created it. He set up the structure, the hierarchy, the, not hierarchy, but the, the, uh, the methods that these things would, be, would transpire in a local church. Very important. And for a Christian to not, to, to hop around or to stay in a parachurch organization and not really have roots in, in a home church, it's a mistake. Because a member is someone who has actually testified to all of the other believers that they've received Christ as their Savior. There's been many people who came to this church over the years that I've never heard that from them. I've never heard it once. Some of them are gone now. Most of them are gone now. But there were people who, who came here for years, never joined the church. You see, when you want to join this church, you're going to testify to all of us that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. We may assume that you have, but it's important to say that. It's important to follow the Lord in obedience in believers' baptism. So a church member has not only testified of their faith in Christ, but they've followed Him in believers' baptism. It's very serious. There is a doctrinal agreement among us especially on the primary, fundamental issues. In a church, this is where our spiritual gifts are exercised with purpose. 
In chapter 12, it's going to talk about the church as a body. And so just imagine if like you are the hands, but you don't come all the time. You rarely come and you're the hands. So now all of a sudden you got all the feet trying to be feet and hands. It just doesn't quite work. You know, a foot is just not quite a hand, right? It's not the same. And uh, in chapter 12, everybody wants to be the big, beautiful, bouncing blue eyeball because it gets lots of attention and it's pretty and all of this. So all of these things, but you can just see that in the body of Christ, if all of the individual believers have been given spiritual gifts, but you're not available, you're not uh, open to God using you, and you're not exercising your gifts, then the entire body suffers. This is the purpose of the local church. It is a place where we build up each other. It is a place of encouragement. And most of all, it is a place of accountability. In a nutshell, the local church is a place where we believe God has brought us to serve Him for the time being, for however long that is. For right now, God has brought me here to serve. And so it is within this context, in this sobering passage, that Paul writes, in verse 10, he writes, each one, each believer, must be careful how he builds on it and how he builds on it. It is the foundation, which in verse 11 tells us that the foundation is Jesus. And so a church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a warning for those causing problems in a church. Paul writes in verse 17, he says, If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. Well, think about that. That tells us that the church is vulnerable. Someone can destroy a church. We have the ability to mess things up. We have the ability to mess up another believer. We can cause them to stumble. We can keep you know, being a difficult person around them and break their spirit. I mean, we can really do a lot of damage to each other. And the church is vulnerable in that respect. God does allow us to be vulnerable. But He takes this very seriously when things are destructed. Um, in Luke chapter 17, listen, Jesus once told His disciples this. He said, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one they come through. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So in the, in the context of chapter 3, this destruction would be the disruptive behavior that's occurring in Corinth, these divisive attitudes. There were those in the congregation who were still looking at life from the perspective of the natural man. That's why in verse 18 it says, If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish that he can become wise. And that seems like a bunch of double talk, but we have to remember what he's saying. There's the world's wisdom and then there's God's wisdom. And you have to choose which one you're going to plug into and value and be influenced by. And the specific problem there in 21, it says no one should boast in human leaders because you belong to Christ. This word belong, you belong to Christ. That means that we are not our own. We have been purchased at, at great cost, which is probably the nicest thing anyone's ever done for us. And so we do owe God this much to, to treat Him and His people and His church where He chooses to gather us together 
with the utmost respect. Now, in closing, we're going to look at verse 13. Um, what are we to make out of uh, verse 13? Each one's work will become obvious or manifest. For the day you will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. Now obviously, work is not something that's tangible. And so it's, it's giving us a mental picture, because we all know what it's like to throw something into the fire and watch it burn. We've all watched things get completely consumed. If you've ever been around a campfire or something, or you've thrown something like straw, it burns up immediately. It immediately catches fire and is completely gone within half of a second. So it's a, it's a mental picture for us to imagine this evaluation that's going to be coming. This is referring to the judgment seat of Christ. Some of your passages may see the tribunal or it just may see uh, the, the tribunal or the judgment seat. These are translations of a word called, uh, a Greek word, bima. And the bima just basically means an elevated platform where decisions are made. And so in the, in the ancient times, a bima seat was something a judge would sit on. But it was also a place where uh, athletes were rewarded, like in the Olympics or something. And so uh, there was actually uh, entertainment. Uh, a bema seat would actually be an elevated area for like a stage. Um, but this is the bema seat of Jesus. Um, some of the examples I have here is um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. This is when athletes are rewarded. He says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so Paul uses this imagery several times in running the race, finishing the race, um, being rewarded in the respect of appearing before Jesus at the Bema seat and being rewarded. Um, other places where there were judges, there was uh, Jesus appeared before the Bema. Um, in, in Acts chapter 18, when Paul came to Corinth, the Jewish people dragged him before the proconsul of Galileo and, and uh, brought him before his Bema seat there in, in, 18, in chapter, Acts chapter 18, verse 12. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, that's that lower region of Greece, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and they brought him to the judge's bench. And that judge's bench is the word Bema. Some of your translations will call it the judgment seat or tribunal. The Bible is clear. Every believer will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. This is Romans 14:12. But you who, why do you criticize your brother or you? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. And in verse 12 it says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. The 
whenever we come to one of these uh, theological issues like the judgment seat of Christ, you know, there's a temptation to just stop what we're doing and just study that. And uh, when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we may have to do a little bit of that. But we don't want to lose thought of this passage and what it is that Paul is talking about. He's talking about how the church is a, is a family. We're supposed to be... Uh, we're supposed to be not only getting along, but we're supposed to love each other and actually, you know, care about each other. I love you guys. I care about you guys. And I feel that from you too. I know we all love each other. That's what a church is supposed to be. We're a family. And we're supposed to grow together. And as we do this, we're going to see God do stuff in our lives. And we're going to bear fruit. And when we do appear before the beam of seat, there will be reward. That's the good news. So, four things. First of all, at this place where we stand before Jesus, our salvation is not in question. We're not going to be judged on whether or not we're going to go to heaven. That was already resolved the moment you put your faith in Jesus. When you gave Him your heart, it's a done deal. Romans 8.1 There is... <clears throat> Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is going to be looking at your life as a believer and my life as a believer. It's going to be embarrassing. Let's, let's be honest. This is not going to be the greatest day of our lives. But it's, a, it's to determine reward. Not punishment, but reward. And... Uh, I know a bunch of stuff's going to burn. I'm going to be <laughs> a lot of burning when I'm up there. And, uh, but my salvation is intact. And so is yours. Secondly, what we do in this life does matter. And what we do is going to be evaluated. There's a man by the name of Cliff Ursel, And he, uh, at the time, uh, was a bivocational pastor in Vancouver. And he was trying to make ends meet for his family. And so he got the bright idea of being a painter, like a professional painter. And if you've ever tried to find anybody to do work for you, you know that it's in high demand. And so all of a sudden he had lots of jobs. And so he was asked to paint this house. And so uh, he painted it, but it took forever. And by the time he spent all that material, he had to buy things you know, to get himself started and everything. He said, I was probably making about a dollar an hour and they got the house painted. And then the homeowners, the people who were going to buy the house, they did their walkthrough. And as they went through it, they were supposed to put sticky notes on places that were, you know, like, this is, needs fixing here, or this isn't quite right, this doorknob's loose, you know. Uh, so when he came back, there were sticky notes throughout the house because his job he did was poor. He had to go back and paint again. And he found out that not only did these people, were they evaluating what he was doing, they had the authority to evaluate. If he wanted to get paid, he had to go back and fix everything. And so he said, I learned two very valuable lessons. I learned that what I do matters. It matters to other people. This was going to be their house where they lived. So it's important for us to do a good job. And then he found out that I'm going to be evaluated. The work I do is going to be tested. 
And so we must remember that Jesus does love us and His desire is to reward us. Number three, there's four here. Number three, the worst case scenario. We see it there in the passage. It says, if anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. So we see here that our salvation is secure. It doesn't say someone's, but it says if someone's work. I don't know if it's possible for a Christian for their entire life to just be burned up. You know, I thought about the thief on the cross and, you know, uh, he is put to death at the end of his life. He's got a, an entire life that's just wasted. He, he's a lost man. And you may know someone who did not uh, become a Christian until they were on their deathbed even. And so this entire life, and so there's no, no time for them to get rewards and to do this and do that. But you know that thief on the cross? The um, Bible tells us that Jesus was... Uh, put on a cross with one criminal on each side of him, one on his right and one on his left. And people were walking by and they were mocking Jesus. And the criminals on the crosses began to mock Jesus. They were joining in, giving Jesus the blues. But the Gospel of Luke tells us that at a certain point, that thief on the cross had a moment of clarity and he turned to the other criminal and he said, you know, don't you fear God? What's happening to us? We deserve. But this guy has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, will you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. In those brief hours before that thief on the cross died, he testified to Jesus and to that other criminal that he put his faith in Jesus. He witnessed. And it's written in the Bible because there was people out there that heard it too. He testified. And he witnessed. And that is rewardable. And finally, the million dollar question is, when is all of this going to happen? And of course, the answer to that question has to do with how you see the end times which is complicated. It's so complicated that most people don't even try to study it. And God doesn't like that. God doesn't want us to be the kind of people who don't study and try. And I will be honest with you about myself. This is me personally. Um, the longer I study the Bible, the more I come to understand why other people see things differently. I've taught many times about the end times and different events that will occur in the future. And I know so much more now than I knew when I was teaching it then. I did not know so much. And so I have learned personally that it is a journey, and, but it is worth taking. Try to learn. Try to study. Every opportunity. And have a, have a humble heart that is willing to change if you're wrong. That's the only way God's ever going to teach you anything about this. So I can say with confidence that what the Bible teaches is that this test is going to occur, are you ready? When Jesus comes back for us. 
<laughs> I know that's a, a baited question because you guys, there's a lot of different views about the end times, but the one thing that is crystal clear is that when Jesus does come back for us, this is going to happen. So let's pray.